Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How are we doing today, family? Yeah, is it cold enough out there for you this morning? That was a bit of a shock, wasn't it? Great to see all of you, and for those of you joining us from home who are sitting in the warmth of your home and haven't felt that bite and that chill just yet. It is warming up out there, and I hope you're having a blessed day. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of asking you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I am excited to begin a brand new series, a fall series. It's going to take us all the way up into the Christmas season, simply entitled Blessed. There's a uh, text of Scripture that haunts me. Every time I read it, it brings conviction on me, uh, causes me immediately to kind of go into a, a state of introspection, if you will. And it's found in Mark chapter 8, actually, verse 18. I want to read it to you as I get started. Jesus here speaking to his own disciples, and he says, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Now, he says this in response to his own early followers, tone deafness toward what he was trying to teach them. And if you read the gospel accounts carefully, uh, it doesn't take you long to come to the conclusion this is far from the only time Jesus has to do this. Repeatedly, he has to remind his own disciples, this is what I meant. You're not hearing me. You're not seeing this. You're not getting this. And I have to wonder when I read that, how often does that happen in my life? You ever wonder that? How often have I read a passage from God's Word that I've maybe read a hundred times before, and I made the horrible mistake of reading it as though I've read it a hundred times before. And that's particularly dangerous, by the way, for a guy in my position. All right, seven years of education, most of that studying the Bible and seminary, really easy for someone in my line of work to go, oh yeah, that's good, I'm gonna read, I can even read this in Greek, I got this. And then you just scroll on past it and you miss something profound because you're not listening. And I wonder, how many times have I made that mistake? I got this, I understand this, I've read this a hundred times. And how many times as a result did I not see, did I not hear, and how many times has Jesus said, said to me through his spirit, the same thing he said to his disciples face to face, Rainy, you, I had you be born in a century where there were coming aids and you're still not getting this. You don't see, you don't hear, you're not paying attention. How often have I missed the point completely and how often as a result has Jesus had to strip me? through suffering or hardship or some other sort of divine shock and awe approach to the point that I was finally ready to relearn something that I must admit I never really understood to begin with. And when we come to Matthew chapter 5, we're coming to a text of Scripture which presents that danger because most of us, if we follow Jesus for any length of time, we've heard this sermon, we've read these verses, and more particularly, we've heard this word that forms the title of this series— We've heard this word used over and over, both in the church and also in the, in the wider culture, how it's used, this word blessed. It's all over social media, isn't it? Well, it used to be. Maybe not so much in the last six months. But, but I'm telling you, it's all over the place. I got a new car, hashtag 
blessed. I got a new job, hashtag blessed. Look at my new boyfriend, girlfriend, isn't he cute? Isn't she hot? Hashtag blessed. There's always something, right? And, and we, we've tied that to God's goodness in our lives. And because of that, some misunderstanding comes from this. For one thing, too often, particularly in the West, we tie blessedness to prosperity. So when my wallet's thick, my banking app's got plenty in there, and I can take that vacation, and things are really good, and things are good with my wife, and things are good with my kids, and things are going well at work, I am blessed. And when they're not, I might not be quite so crass as to say I'm not living in blessing, but I kind of assume that, don't I? It's because we correlate material prosperity with God's blessing. I'll prove that to you. When's the last time you saw a social media post that said, hey, I've got to have a root canal, hashtag blessed? Never seen that? Yeah, me neither. I just lost my job, hashtag blessed. My wife just left me for another guy, hashtag blessed. I've never seen anything like that. It's because we're always correlating it to our experiences and what's going on around us. And the reason we do that, and this is important, is because we too often conflate the goodness of God with the blessing of God. And they are not the same thing. I, I think about Kim Jong-un, the, the dictator, the leader, the current leader of, of the North Korean regime. You remember several months ago when everybody wondered where he was and thought maybe perhaps he might be dead? Turns out he was alive and well and kicking it and doing just better than anybody had ever hoped. And I thought about him. I thought about his father and his grandfather, the three generations of the Kim dynasty. And I thought about the blood of millions of Korean citizens that are on the hands of those three men. And I thought about how he enjoys the best of life in spite of that. You ever thought about that? Some of the cruelest, meanest, most heartless people in the world enjoy the finest meals. They have all the power. This man gets anything he wants, which is another way of saying God is being good to him. But if he doesn't repent, there's going to come a time when he's going to pass out of this world and into the next one, and he will get an amazing wake-up call that will reveal to him that though he enjoyed the goodness of God, he never had the blessing of God. And you know what scares me? What scares me is I don't think he's the only guy living under that delusion. I wonder if there's some other people at home right now that have that. I wonder if maybe if there's some people in front of me right now laboring under that delusion. And I wonder even if some of what's going on, I don't know the mind of God. I'm not going to begin to tell you everything he's doing. I'm not going to be a prophet and tell you with, with COVID and all the toxicity in our culture and everything and an election that's scaring the hell out of everybody and everything else that's going on in our world right now. I'm not going to tell you everything God's doing because I don't know. But I do wonder if at least a part of this might be God's good, gracious intention to strip them some things away that have caused us to think we have the blessing of God and force us to ask some harder questions like, for example, can I live in blessedness when my 401k is worth roughly one-third less than it was six months ago? Can I live in blessedness? When a loved one has perished from COVID-19, can I live in blessedness when I'm still looking for a job that I haven't found yet that will make up for me that income that was lost back in March or back in April? And, and many of the things I think we intuitively thought indicated God's blessing have been taken from us. Jesus has stripped us of our understanding of what it means to live blessed because apparently, kind of like his early disciples, we sometimes have eyes but we don't see. 
and we sometimes have ears, but we just don't hear. Now, here's the good news. You and I are in a prime, incredible position right now to learn what it, what it really means to live blessed. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us the most complete, most comprehensive, most perfect definition of the blessedness of life. And he did it in a sermon and in a passage of Scripture in that sermon in particular that is known as the Beatitudes. And over the next several weeks, we're going to learn that blessing is not tied to your health or your wealth or any other tangible thing in your life, that there is a state of being called blessedness. No matter what's going on in your life, what you have or don't have, or even what tangibly gets taken from you, this is something you can have right here and right now, and it will never, ever be taken away. You can live blessed. But living in blessing, it requires a couple of things right at the start. Number one is this, the concept of blessing. When you read it in this text, when you read it with, really even within the confines of the larger New Testament corpus, is connected in an inseparable way with everything we learn from Jesus about the kingdom of God. Jesus mentions the kingdom 85 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We ain't even looked at John. Just in those first three synoptic gospels, 85 times. You cannot honestly read the texts of the gospels and come away with any other legitimate conclusion than this. Jesus' greatest obsession when he walked this earth was the kingdom of God. And this state of blessedness is inextricably linked to that. This passage is right in the middle of some of the most powerful teaching on that kingdom, which is another way of saying this. If I want blessing, I better chase that kingdom. I had better be obsessed as he is with that kingdom. Secondly, asking, am I blessed, is another way of asking, do I belong to the kingdom? Or more important, more to the point, do I really belong to Jesus? And so I want us to take a look at this passage in a more in-depth way. I don't want us to spend the next few months reading it as though we've read it a hundred times before. And I want us to start by understanding something of, of what gave rise to, to this sermon. And how did it begin in this way? Why did it begin in this way? Jesus, at the end of chapter 4, has been teaching on the nature of the kingdom of God. Oh, and by the way, he's been illustrating it as well. He's been healing diseases and casting out demons. And, and as you can imagine, when you do something like that, it's going to cause a scene. People are going to pay attention. Some people are going to be very impressed. Lots of folks are going to want to know more about you. And so the more of this he does, the more people pay attention, the larger the crowds become, the more focused they are on this man called Jesus until we finally get to verse 1 of chapter 5. Apparently, Jesus in his wisdom decides this is the moment. I've got them to just about the right size. I've got their attention. It's time for some teaching. And so he opens his mouth and he says the following. And he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. First word out of his mouth. Blessed, blessed, now, there's a couple of reasons that word got their attention. First off is they, when they thought of this word blessedness, they kind of understood it in pretty much the same way that we understand it today, what our culture would say it means to be blessed. It's the pinnacle of, of, of existence. It's the good life. It's the American dream. It's the four-bedroom house. It's the 3.2 kids. It's the dog and the cat that don't shed or pee on your shoes or whatever. I mean, it's, it's the dream world, right? This is the good life. Moreover, in the ancient world, it actually meant a little bit more than that. Homer, 
uh, used the same word, makarios, as it occurs in the Greek term, to describe the status of all of the gods that the Greeks believed existed on Mount Olympus. And all of culture had pretty much adopted this. When they hear this word makarios, blessed, that's immediately where their minds went. That is a state of being that belongs to the best. It belongs to the most powerful. It belongs to the most wealthy. It belongs to the most privileges. Those were the most privileged. And, and Jesus so when he says blessed to this crowd, it, it sounds like amazingly good news to them because they haven't heard any good news in a long, long time. In fact, the last time they heard any good news or any, anything from God really was 400 years before this event. Look at this text from Malachi 4.6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now that was kind of expressive of the overall tone of Malachi. And so the Old Testament ends with a curse. It then is, is, is punctuated with 400 years of silence. Nobody hears from God. And now Jesus comes onto the scene. There's a new covenant that's about to be inaugurated. The curse is about to end. Blessing is about to be the new reality for anybody in this kingdom and so if you're blessed, here's what it means. It means to be privileged with divine favor. Living in blessing is not about the amount of money you have. It's not about the quality of your relationships. It's not about whether you're living in the world that we enjoyed in January or whether you're scared out of your mind of the world that we're currently inhabiting now. Living in a state of blessedness means living with the unconditional approval and affirmation of the God who created you. And there's no greater peace that can come into your life and mine than when we get there. That's why it's good news. You're a recipient of the approval of God himself. So get, out of, get, get this idea of happy out of your mind. This is not what this means, okay? If you've got a living Bible, throw it away. It's no good, especially at this text. Happy are those, right? Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the murder. Happy, happy, happy. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. What Jesus says tells me that at some point, I'm going to lose my spouse or she is going to lose me. And when one of us is at the graveside mourning the other, I'm not going to be happy because I'm normal. But you know what I will be? By the promise of Jesus, I will live in blessedness that can never be taken away. So get rid of this happy nonsense and let's go a little deeper into what he's talking about. How could you truly live in blessedness at the graveside? How could you truly say you're blessed and simultaneously live in poverty unless this means something much more permanent and much more valuable? A life, a state of being that carries with it everywhere I go the unconditional approval and affirmation of God. And that life is available to you and me, and it begins in this way. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a five-fold call packed into this concise declarative statement. And I want you to see these challenges. The first is this. You want to get this kingdom presence? You want to live blessed? You need to, first of all, understand what he's talking about here. Understand spiritual poverty, because this is where the blessed life starts. First words out of his mouth. 
And those words teach us this is the beginning of a whole new way of life. They also teach us this is a fundamental characteristic of anyone who follows Jesus, which means everything that's going to come after this, everything that produces the mercy that God expects to see in my life, the peacemaking, all of the other qualities that we see later on, the source of all of that is right here. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, there's a couple of words in the New Testament that are translated poor. One of those simply describes people who have a hard time. They sort of, we might say it's those people that live pay to, paycheck to paycheck. It, it's, let's take a, a single income blue collar family, for example. And we got a lot of those families in our church. I love you. Uh, wonderful salt of the earth people. They love Jesus. They serve. But things, sometimes they get a little tight, don't they? It's, it's a stretch among some of these families just to have a little extra cash to even be able to go out to eat once or even twice a month. Life is, seems to be always directed by the fact that money is always tight. But, but at the end of the day, you go, you know what, Bo? We, we eat. There's food on the table. There's a shelter over our head. Our children are fed. They're clothed. They're educated. We've been able to provide for our family. You struggle, but you make it. That's not where Jesus is going. The word he uses for poor is not used of those individuals. It's used of beggars. And it has a spiritual corollary that's found for us in the rest of Scripture. Look at Psalm 51, 17. This is David's confession of his sin before God. And he says the following, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know what it means to be broken? It means to be broke. That's what it means. How do I know that? Because this word broke, as it occurs in Hebrew, about 200 years before Jesus came along, there was a group of 70 scholars recognizing that sort of the new lingua franca, the new trade language on the global scene in the first century would eventually be not Hebrew, not Aramaic, but Greek. And so they set about to translate the entire Old Testament from the Hebrew language into the Greek language. And when they came to the 51st Psalm and they saw that word broken, the word they chose in Greek to translate it is exactly the same word that Jesus uses when he says poor in spirit. You know what it means? Destitute. That's what it means. You're a beggar. Blessed are you when you come to Jesus with nothing. You're blessed. That's how it starts. And there's no other way for it to start than this way. Now that as they say where I come from, that don't make no sense, does it? I mean, you look at like, are you kidding me? Blessed are you when you're destitute. What kind of sense does that make? Jesus will give you the kingdom in exchange for coming to him blind, naked, broke. You got nothing to offer. This, this is crazy talk. And it, Jesus employs this a lot in his teaching. It's called paradox. G.K. Chesterton, the late British philosopher said, paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for your attention, right? So some of you are going to go out today to, for lunch and, and you, you, you see something and you go, wow, that's kind of, well, I, in Shepherdstown maybe it won't be too shocking to see some guy standing on his head yelling, right? And you're like, man, that's a crazy guy. But you're morbidly curious, aren't you? I mean, it's like a train wreck. You can't, you can't turn away. Why is he doing that, right? You see somebody walking with a sandwich board like we saw in downtown Winchester, Virginia the other day. I'm like, why is he doing that? You, it just raises your, peaks your curiosity. He said, 
Paradox is like that. Truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. It looks kind of ugly. It doesn't make any sense. It seems crazy. But out of, if, if for no other reason, out of sheer morbid curiosity, you keep edging a little bit closer. You keep paying a little bit more attention. And the closer you get, the more sense it starts to make until finally you get so close you realize everything about this that seems so contradictory actually fits together so beautifully and it makes perfect sense. And Jesus' teaching is pregnant with paradox. He lives there. If you, don't, if you don't believe it, then you've forgotten. This is the same Lord who tells you, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. you got to give it up. you got to have it count for nothing. This is the same Lord that says, you want to be first? Go to the back of the line. This is the same Lord that says, you want to be great? Find somebody to serve. That's what you need to do. And in the beginning of this sermon, Jesus says the blessed life comes in this way. You cannot be filled with the kingdom and the blessedness that I have planned for you unless you come to me with your tank completely empty. I mean, I don't even want fumes in the thing. And so basically, this is a personal acknowledgement of my spiritual bankruptcy. It's I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to commend to you, but when you get to that point, Jesus has everything to commend to you, and he'll give it to you. But you've got to understand what spiritual poverty is, and secondly, you've got to acknowledge that that is true of your own soul as well. Now, here's the honest truth, if we're just going to be transparent with each other. Most people, when they understand what it means to be poor in spirit, are not going to want to admit that they're poor in spirit, all right? If I make a dumb decision and it, and it costs me money, I don't want to brag to my friends about that, right? We don't want to admit that. And the world, moreover, rejects this poverty of spirit. It's one of the reasons that Jesus will utter the, uh, the following warning later in the sermon. We, we talk about the narrow way. This is it's because few are they that will take this road. Look at these words from Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Just brag about all the stuff you think you're good at. And those who enter by it are many, for the way is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I would submit to you that is connected with the beginning of this sermon specifically because Jesus is saying one of the primary reasons there will be more people in hell than there will be in heaven at the end of the age is because people don't want to give up their pride and admit before me that they got nothing. This is step number one. You come to me empty. You acknowledge that you're empty. And, and that's going to be hard because the values of the culture are built on pride self-sufficiency, right? The, the world's got its own counterfeit of what it means to be blessed, doesn't it? Blessed is the one who's always right. Blessed is the one who's always strong. Blessed is the one who looks good on television. Blessed is the one who's always a success. Blessed is the one who makes the team. Blessed is the one who earns uh, great income. Blessed is the one who furthermore is satisfied with himself, who is rich. You know what that is though at the end of the day? It's ultimately dependency on self. I, I need money, I need image, I need this or that or the other in order to make God look good, and it's a denial of the obvious fact that God don't need you to look good for him to look good. Now, because we're normal, I'm one of these guys, I, I would prefer it if we could both look good. 
I would. I would. I don't like looking like a failure. But then I'm reminded of Paul. He says, his power is perfected in my weakness. The man who took the thorn in the flesh, the man who said this momentary light affliction is achieving for me something on the other side that I can't possibly fathom. And those things which are unseen are the things which are eternal. I'm not worried about the fact that I'm a, I'm a jailbird in almost every city I go into. I'm not worried about that because I've acknowledged from the very beginning my spiritual poverty. And isn't this, isn't this what we teach our kids, by the way, in children's church? The ABCs of salvation, the A is what? Admit that you're a sinner. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, we haven't explored that quite enough, have we? Yeah, you just, yeah, I lie to my parents sometimes. Yeah, I stole some candy from the drugstore. Yeah, I pushed that guy on the playground. I'm sorry, God. Is that really what it means? What are you copping to here when you actually come to faith in Jesus? What are you doing? At the core, this is what you're doing. God, I have nothing. I acknowledge I have nothing. And to enter that kingdom, you must acknowledge it, and then you must go even further. You must thirdly embrace spiritual poverty. There's a, a parable in, Matt, in Luke, rather, chapter 18. Jesus tells the story of two men. One's a Pharisee. Um, he's a guy kind of like me. He's, he's very well-versed in the scriptures. He, he's a visible leader. He's well-respected. He's He's educated, he's, he's just one of those guys. He's very conservative also. And then, and then almost side by side, he's walking into the temple with a tax collector. Now, we make jokes about IRS agents today, but in the ancient world, when they talked about those people and basically said they're scum, they were actually telling the truth. These were people that were very crooked, okay? We only think the Internal Revenue Service is crooked. They're really not. You should write that quarterly check, okay? But, but in the ancient world, they really were. They would, they would enrich themselves. They would cheat you. Um, and, and so here's what you have. You have two men, radically different worlds and lifestyles, and, and viewed in radically different ways by the culture around them. They go into the temple together, and as they pray, Jesus says, the Pharisee, the one that's greatly respected, says the following, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this man. I fast twice a week. I tithe everything I have. Jesus would later almost roll his eyes at this. He says to the Pharisees later on, yeah, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, which is his way of saying, yeah, you're so obsessed with your freaking tithe, you tithe out of your spice rack. But this is what he's doing. What's he doing? He's bragging. What's he saying? I got plenty to offer you, Lord. This is all the stuff I do. The tax collector, by contrast, very, very simple words. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says this, that, that that's what it looks like to embrace your spiritual poverty, by the way. And the result, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The conservative, well-respected seminary graduate, he's going to hell because he did not come to me with an empty tank. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So just go ahead and embrace it. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to say, come to the Lord, I got nothing. To admit before your brothers and sisters, I got nothing. 
embrace spiritual poverty. Fourthly, begin to depend on spiritual poverty. And, and here's the reason why. This poverty of spirit is essential for you to be saved. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, belongs to these. Here's the corollary to that. It belongs only to these. The poor in spirit. It's a controversial question, isn't it, even today? Who goes to heaven exactly, and how do they get there? It uh, might surprise you to know that when I teach philosophy on a Christian college campus, I sometimes encounter students who've been raised in Bible-believing churches who, who get really upset when you as a professor suggest something that up until very recently, maybe 15 minutes ago in the 2,000-year history of the church, was considered a rather unremarkable, unassumed axiom of Christian faith. And it is this, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and ain't nobody coming to the Father except through him. And Peter echoes this in Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given, other, given among men by which we must be saved. Now, here's the thing. I'm not surprised when non-Christians don't like that or when they don't agree with it or when they just reject it. My Jewish friends, my Muslim friends, I love them. They love me. I, I'm not offended when they disagree with me about that at all. Let me tell you what really sends me into orbit, like just really shocks me. It's when people inside the church who claim to follow Jesus but who have not approached God in a, at a level of spiritual poverty still think they know Jesus. Well, I walked an aisle. I raised my hand. Pastor, that was a really emotional day. I cried. I signed a card. I, I prayed a prayer, a sinner's prayer, which, by the way, you will not find that anywhere in the Word of God. But they never, ever recognized and admitted to the Lord, I'm spiritually bankrupt. And we need to be reminded by the words of Jesus here, no one enters the kingdom of God without poverty of spirit. We need to understand what it means. We need to acknowledge it in our own lives, our own souls. We need to embrace it before God and before other people. We need to live after that moment dependent upon it. Because even since I've come to know the Lord, there ain't nothing I've added to my resume that impresses the Lord. And there's nothing you can do that will impress him. Isn't that the most hilarious thing in the world to try to impress God? I mean, I can impress some of you sometimes. On occasion in the last 26 years of my marriage, I've even, I've even managed to impress Mrs. Rainey a few times. But to think I can do anything that will impress the God who created me, anything I do that has any value is based upon and is dependent upon gifts he gave me. So i got to say, no, I, I can't do that. I've got to acknowledge, I've got to embrace it. I've got to depend daily on this. And then once I do that, I can grow in it. I can grow in spiritual poverty. How's that for a paradox? But look at this promise from Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we spent a good deal of time today looking at the hard reality of our own poverty, but let, let me give you a statement of equal reality a fact that is eternally established for people like you and me. We may be poor, we may have nothing, we may not be impressive, but if we admit we have nothing, God through Jesus will fill us with everything. That's his promise. I will grant you the kingdom. 
all of it. And here's the principle. The more I shed of myself, the more I shed of my own pride and self-sufficiently, the more powerfully I am allowed to walk in this truth. Mine is the kingdom of heaven. And listen to me, brothers and sisters, this isn't just for when you get to heaven. Jesus describes this as a present reality. This is a state of blessing you can live in right here, right now. Doesn't matter the size of your wallet. Doesn't matter the quality of your relationships. Doesn't matter if you're still looking for a job. Doesn't matter if you're scared to death of what's going to happen in November. Doesn't matter if COVID has got you freaked out. None of that matters. A state of being independent of all of that is available to you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And until you develop poverty of spirit, you're always going to be chained up to something that's not really real. Plato, the, the ancient Greek philosopher, when speaking about this idea of human knowledge, how do we know the philosophical discipline of epistemology? How do human beings know what they know? And he, told, he, he shared the story, the analogy of a cave. He said, if you take a man from birth and you chain him up, in a cave so that he can't turn and look at is the back of the cave. He can't turn around and look at the mouth. He can't see what's outside the cave. The only thing he really sees for all of his life are people and other kinds of things that are passing in the mouth of that cave, and the sunlight hits them, and it casts a shadow on the back of the cave. And to that man, those shadows are real, and they're the only reality he knows. You must loosen the chains, which, by the way, he said was the discipline of philosophy. It's the purpose of it. And turn him so that he can see that there's a greater reality. And I would submit to you that what Jesus is talking to us about here is something very similar. Some of you may have some chains on you right now. Sickness, marital discord, financial stress, job loss. It's not that those things aren't real. Shadows are real, too. You ever been spooked by a shadow? Walking along? You know, like me, you know, big and bad. I got all this together. I got it all together. Ain't nobody ever going to hurt me. <laughs> like, I'm not the only one, right? Y'all been there? It, well, a shadow, is it real? Well, it's a reflection. Are reflections real? Yeah. Yeah, the problems we have in this life can be very real to us. But compared to that ultimate reality, Jesus says they're really nothing more than a shadow. And when you admit your dependency and confess your, your spiritual bankruptcy, Jesus will give you a glimpse of a coming reality that is more real than any kind of trouble you may be going through right now or anything you may be worried about as we head into the future together. And that is what he is calling and will call for the rest of this series, the blessed life. Not to have a better temporary one here, but a perfect eternal one waiting on you there and to have that reality be every source of your joy in this world until you see him. That's why he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And the result that's going to come after this, wow. It's going to be people who mourn while the rest of the world is fighting. That sounds like something relevant, doesn't it? It's going to be people who are merciful while the rest of the world assumes a dog-eat-dog -dog personality and approach to the world. It's going to be meekness because our Savior, through his own willing weakness, brought us eternal life. It's going to be peacemakers because those are the people who recognize that they're following Jesus, who brought peace and reconciled us with 
our God. It's going to be those hungry for righteousness, persecuted for righteousness' sake, powerful people who live in the blessing of God. Now, now what's that look like when it takes up residence in my heart? That's what the next several weeks are about. That's what these next several weeks are about. But let me give you kind of a broad description that I think is given best by, uh, of what this means by the late biblical commentator William Barclay. He says, the world can win its joys, and the world can equally as well lose its joys. We've all experienced that, haven't we? A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even a change in the weather. <laughs> it was cold this morning, wasn't it? Can take away the fickle joy the world can give. But the Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ. And of the Beatitudes, he says this, they are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy nothing in this world can ever take away. He's just echoing what Jesus is telling us right here in verse 3. You want to live blessed? Come and get it. It's yours for the taking. But you got to come with nothing in your hands, nothing, nothing, empty tank. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Yours will be and can be right now the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words, which can be sort of confusing in a day like ours, but are really no more confusing than they were in the first century to a group of people who, like us, too often confuse your blessing with your goodness. And Lord, help us to realize that that state of being is ours for the taking. And Father, if there's someone here today in front of me or on the other side of that camera that has never truly come to faith in Christ, which is to say they have never come to him with a completely empty tank and said, I got nothing, I am bankrupt, and had you fill them with your blessing and grant them eternal life, and the promise of the kingdom of God, Lord, today, Lord, today, may that be the day uh, that they come and that, they, that you can claim them as your own. And Father, wherever we're at right now, the, the level of suffering and the other kinds of hardship and the anxiety and other kinds of things that we face, Lord, comfort us today and, and even do more than that. Encourage us and empower us to be the salt and light you call us to be and to know and to have the confidence we don't need to bring anything in our, into, in our hands. In fact, it'd be better if we didn't. You will fill us with everything because ours is the kingdom of God. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.